welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. Go to Revelation chapter chapter 2. And we'll finish up. We're in the seven churches of Revelation. Seven actual churches that existed in John's day. There were more than that in Asia Minor, obviously. Present-day Turkey. The Roman province of Asia Minor. Uh, But there are seven churches being addressed. Uh, That's a symbol of the complete church. And we know that and we accept that because we're sitting here in High Point reading these letters to these churches. So obviously they weren't just private letters to those seven churches. They're meant for all the churches. And in the seven letters, uh, you will find just about every condition or situation of church life. We've done Ephesus and Smyrna. So today, Pergamum and Thyatira. So if you leave from Smyrna and go north about 35 miles, you will end up in Pergamum. Uh, A couple words about Pergamum before we read the letter addressed to the church of Pergamum, which starts in chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, Pergamum was the capital, the Roman capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Uh, Last week we looked at Ephesus. So if, if Ephesus is sort of the New York City of ancient Asia Minor, Pergamum would be the Washington, D.C. of ancient uh, Asia Minor. It was the provincial capital. Uh, It was um, the first city anywhere that constructed a temple to emperor worship. Uh, They constructed a temple to emperor worship in 29 A.D., which would have been about right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So they were the first Uh, By the time John is writing at the end of the first century, emperor worship is widespread, and it's a major, major issue for the Christians. Yes? Messenger. Give me three choices for the messenger. Who may the messenger be? And we're actually going to see an angel again because every letter starts with it. Messenger is either, it could be an angel, just angel, angel. Uh, and that's usually in the book of Revelation, it is an angel, because you'll keep running across angels, angels, or angels. Um, but it could also be the leader of the church. Because again, angel just means messenger, so it could be the leader of the church. Uh, some people will say maybe it's the ethos of the church, uh, the alter ego of the church, the culture of the church. Uh, if you take it to just be angel, which probably is the most obvious thing, uh, just remember You know, human beings are given guardian angels in the New Testament. Uh, The Old Testament book of Daniel, which is a strong basis for revelation, uh, gives nations and people groups guardian angels. Uh, Who's the guardian angel of Israel? Michael, thank you. Michael is the guardian angel of Israel. You see that from the book of Daniel. So um, it could be any of those three or perhaps more. Uh, All of the letters are addressed to to the angels of the church. But Pergamum is a major city. Uh, You're going to see a high Acropolis. Uh, It's it's even going to be referred to as um, as Satan City. Terrible name for a city, Satan City. 
Um, so you get the feeling as to how the glorified Christ feels about Pergamum. Uh, you're going to see several references in the letter that will tell you more about the city of Pergamum. So look at 2.12 and following. Uh, there's the format that's followed in every one of these. And it does start to the angel of the church in Pergamum. So again, there's your angel. Again, messenger is the only thing what the word angelos means is messenger. Um, a messenger from God, a messenger of God. So uh, the overseer, pastor, leader of the church, the alter ego, ethos of the church, um, probably just maybe the angel. Simply because in the context here, and context is always important. In the context here, every, every time angels are mentioned, it really is just angels. So to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. And remember where these descriptions of Jesus come from. Uh, you read them in chapter 1. You read them in chapter 1 when you had that initial vision of the glorified Christ. And now what you have in chapters 2 and 3 at the beginning of each letter you have just a snippet from the description of Jesus and that initial vision repeated. So here the snippet is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So you know who it is because you've read chapter 1. You know who it is that's addressing the church. It's the glorified Christ. Uh, probably the reason this is the description that's used for Jesus at this point is because, again, Pergamum is what? It is the provincial capital. For the Romans uh, as they rule in Asia Minor. Uh, one of the ways uh, the government was referred to in the New Testament by Paul, for instance, in Romans 13, is that the state, the, the government, in this situation, the Roman government, has the power of the sword. Paul even admits that, says that in Romans 13, the state has the power of the sword uh, for protection or perhaps punishment, but the state has the power of the sword. So given the fact Pergamum is the um, capital, the Washington, D.C., of Asia Minor, uh, the sword is being referenced maybe to remind the hearers that even though the state, the Roman government, says they have the power of the sword, and the people may think they have the power of the sword, ultimately it's not the state who has the power of the sword. Uh, the glorified Christ here is, is referenced as the one uh, who has the sharp two-edged sword. And again, you, you know enough about the New Testament uh, from Ephesians 6, from the book of Hebrews, uh, that um, the word of God is frequently referred to as a sword. So when, when the glorified Christ is referenced as having a sword that he brings to bear on judgment, and that's what he's going to do here at Pergamum, He's going to bring the sword to bear on judgment to the church there. Uh, for, um, for the glorified Christ, the way Christ judges is not with uh, the kind of armies, the kind of sword that Rome or other governments may judge with, but simply the word. The power of the word of the resurrected, glorified Christ has the power to judge, has the power to create reality, has the power to create present reality and future reality. So the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. You know that from chapter 1, that's Jesus. And again, you've got the same format here. You're going to have commendations. You're going to have um, condemnations. Uh, then you're going to have a call to repentance. Uh, you're going to have a, a call to listen. You're going to have uh, uh, rewards mentioned at the end. 
that's the format that's followed in all these letters, except in Laodicea, there is nothing to commend. In, uh, in Smyrna and Philadelphia, there's nothing to condemn. So there's a few minor differences, but that's the format. So the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira, which comes next, has all the categories. So notice, um, so does, notice what's commended. I know where you dwell. Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. So that tells you a lot about Pergamum, that Jesus considers it the place where Satan's throne is. In a minute, he's going to call it Satan City. He's going to call it the city that Satan dwells in. Again, it's the provincial capital. Uh, it does have Satan's throne in it. It was the first temple built to a Roman emperor. You know, lest you ever put the role of the state in an improper place, remember the book of Revelation. You've got to order your loves correctly. Uh, you can be patriotic, uh, except where the state is contrary to your faith. At that point, you're, you're demanded to not be patriotic. You'll notice if you go back, and you need to know this, if you go back to the, to the, to the letters of, of Paul, Paul even says, pray for the emperor. Maybe you remember that. Paul says, pray for the emperor. Paul is writing 30 years earlier. Paul is writing before emperor worship is widespread. Paul is writing before Christians are beginning to be pressured into emperor worship in order to be good patriots. So Paul was fine with the state. Uh, he says that in his letters. The 30 years are going to pass. And then you, by the time you get to the end of the first century, the state is doing a lot of things that the Christians then the first century cannot support. So you're not going to have any commandment in the book of Revelation to pray for the emperor. What you're told over and over and over again in the book of Revelation is resist. Even if it's to the point of bloodshed, resist. Uh, so here you have a very patriotic city. It's the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. It's where uh, the center of emperor worship is. Again, in the ancient world, they had multiple gods, they had many gods, maybe hundreds of gods. So there was no issue with adding another one. Uh, but, of course, in the Jewish and the Christian faith, we can't add another god. You know, we can't worship emperor one day a year as was being required of the good patriots of the Roman Empire. You know, so I'm sure there were some Christians who said, you know, it's just one day a year. Go ahead and offer the incense. Offer worship to Caesar that one day a year. Because, you know, the empire, the Roman government has given us a lot. Uh, just on that one day a year, just look the other way and, and offer incense and, on the altar to the emperor and off, offer worship to the emperor. Well, in the book of Revelation, it says you cannot do that. And if you have to die, you need to die. Uh, so what you get when you look at Paul's letters... And then 30 years later, look at Revelation, is the commandment that we have to discern. We have to be wise. Remember, Jesus said that. We have to be wise and be able to discern what's going on in the culture and know what it is we can support, know what it is we can encourage, and know what it is we've got to resist and refuse to participate in. So here you've got um, the reference to Satan's throne. If you looked at ancient Pergamum, there was a massive hill. Most of the city was built on the hillside. At the top of the hill 
was a massive temple to Zeus, who was the head god in the, in the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. Uh, you can actually go to Berlin today, and you can see the temple that was built to Zeus in Pergamum, the city of Pergamum, reconstructed in, in Berlin. Uh, so it was a massive temple, glorious temple to Zeus. There were many other temples there to many other gods. Um, there was an Asclepion there in Pergamum. Let me tell you about Asclepius, because you've seen references to Asclepius in your culture. Asclepius was the god of healing for the ancient Greco-Romans. And the way you received the healing of um, Asclepius, the god Asclepius, you'd go to the Asclepion, the temple, you would spend the night in the temple, and if one of the sacred snakes rubbed up against you, you might receive healing. <laughs> you think it's weird. Go home and Google, sorry doctors in the room, snake. Serpent. That's it. Go home and Google the symbol for the American Medical Association. Uh, it's actually an instrument uh, that's called a, a, a cadius, cadius. But if you go Google the symbol that's used frequently for the medical world, you got two serpents on that symbol. You ever wonder where those serpents came from? Uh, next time you're with your doctor, ask him if he knows or ask her if she knows why on the symbol for the medical world you've got two serpents. It's Asclepius in the ancient world, the god of healing, and the serpents that would have been in the ancient Asclepians. Um, again, we Christians did not think much of going to the Asclepion to try to get healing from Asclepius, um, particularly if snakes are involved. Remember in the book of Genesis, it was a serpent and the Jewish Christian tradition was a serpent that caused the fall of Adam and Eve. Now, in the book of Genesis, it's just a serpent. Now, in the book of Revelation, you are told that serpent is the devil. That's why we kind of tend to see the devil there in Genesis. Genesis doesn't say Satan or the devil in Genesis, but Revelation in the Christian tradition says that serpent, that, uh, that, that enemy of Adam and Eve was the devil. So yeah, we're not fond of snakes on several different, le several different levels. We're not fond of snakes. Um, there, was, there was a temple to uh, Demeter. There was a temple to um, several other gods. Because uh, Pergamon was a major city. It was the center of the empire for Asia Minor. Uh, and that's why we're, we're not surprised to hear Jesus referring it to it as the place where Satan's throne resides. Um, Pergamum has an issue. So, so now that you know that this city, this ancient city is where Satan's throne is, Satan's throne is, and it's real important, church, to make sure you can discern the difference between Satan's throne and God's throne. Uh, sometimes we get confused. But notice now that you're told, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. So here's the commendation. Even though they're living in the midst of this, they're holding fast to their faith. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
Again, where Satan dwells, that's why I say it's, it's Satan City. Is the name of this city. You can call it the nickname of this city. It's the city where Satan dwells. It's the city where Satan's throne is. Um, I hope you're getting the impression that Jesus nor John thought much of this city. Um, notice also that this is where the, perhaps the first martyr occurs. Antipas is killed here in Pergamum. That makes perfect sense when you think about the city of Pergamum. Uh, this is the first martyr, first one mentioned by name in the book of Revelation. Again, to think a little bit about the background of Revelation, I know that a lot of your study Bibles are going to say that the book of Revelation is written to a persecuted church. Uh, somewhat. But really, if you read the text, it's a church approaching persecution. But it's a church... And this is what precedes persecution. It's a church that's being pressured. It's a church that's being pressured to accommodate, to assimilate, to conform to the culture around it. And it's a culture that is rapidly becoming more and more contrary to Christ uh, here in Asia Minor. So the culture is pressuring the church to conform. And we know this from 2,000 years history now. Uh, the culture pressures the church to conform, but if the church refuses to conform, then the next step is persecution. Uh, they won't say, well, okay, I'm glad you don't conform. We'll go on about our business. Culture will get more and more stringent about making sure to, that Christians are pressured to conform. So um, even though um, we know persecution is coming, there's only two references really uh, to, to martyrs in the book of Revelation. Here, here Antipas is named as one who died. Uh, so it must be getting tough in Pergamum. Someone has already died for their faith. Uh, but notice the commendation. The Christians there are still working to not conform, even though there's at least been one in their midst already killed by the state. Uh, when you get to chapter 7, you will see an image in heaven where there be martyrs underneath the altar in heaven. So there are others dying for their faith. It will get worse where at that point historically, they're just being pressured to accommodate, conform. Uh, and that's why the book of Revelation is written to say, don't, don't do it. Even if it costs your life, don't do it. Yeah, Carol. Well, I mean, in, in Revelation. In Revelation. Yeah, Mark, Stephen's 30 years earlier. The Jews, we talked about that last week. The Jews got a hold of Stephen. So here's the Romans, and we talked last week because we saw it in Smyrna. Sometimes the Romans were pressured to persecute Christians by the Jewish population in these Gentile cities. Yeah, the first martyr in the faith, because you may know St. Stephen's Day, it comes from the book of Acts, right? I mean, we're still in Jerusalem when uh, uh, Stephen is martyred because, and Paul participates, remember? Paul and the other Jews participate in that. This is the first martyr in, that's mentioned in Asia Minor at the end of the first century in this, Jew, in this Gentile world. But again, the commendation is, even though it's getting that bad in Pergamum, evidently the Christians in Pergamum are still holding true. Uh, but you know what's coming, the but. That's the format here. This, this you're doing well, and this you're Laodicea. This you're doing well, but, and then here comes the condemnation. Look at verse 14, but. I have a few things against you, Jesus says. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
I'll run through a little bit of this and come back. Who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now last week we met the Nicolaitans, if you were here or if you listen to the podcast. Uh, we met the Nicolaitans because the Nicolaitans were an issue. Uh, earlier, you saw the Nicolaitans in Ephesus. In Ephesus, uh, the, those Christians are being commended because they hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Uh, they're resisting the work of the Nicolaitans. Well, evidently here in Pergamum, uh, some of the church are holding to the teachings of Balaam, um, and they're holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Uh, in the next letter, Thyatira, you're going to run into sort of the third reference to the people who are doctrinally impacting the Christian community. Uh, and there's going to be a prophetess referred to as Jezebel. I mentioned last week, um, I think, a lot of us think, a lot of the commentators on the book of Revelation think um, the Nicolaitans, the, the people t- keeping the way of Balaam, and the people that are following Jezebel are probably the same group, uh, referenced in different ways. Because if you look at what they're being referenced as doing in the Christian community, they all are kind of doing the same thing. So, if, and if you notice here, it says, and I'll go back and talk about Balaam, but it says, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So it's those two things. Uh, they, they, were in, they were encouraging, pressuring, teaching the Christian community to eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual morality. Uh, when you get with Jezebel and Thyatira, it's going to be the same two issues. Uh, eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual morality. So whether it's the Nicolaitans or the Balaamites, or the people of Jezebel, those are the two things that they're pushing, pressuring the Christian community to do, um, which makes sense. Let's go back and talk about the Balaamites. Uh, if you haven't read Numbers 22 through 24 lately, um, you may want to do that. Uh, Balaam it comes from the Hebrew Bible, but what happens is he, he's referenced in the Hebrew Bible um, but then after, as, as the Jewish community and the Christian community does, after something's referenced in biblical literature, we keep cogitating, thinking about it over the centuries, and we, we think about other things. Uh, what Balaam becomes in Jewish tradition is Balaam becomes um, a person that encourages those early Israelites to worship other gods and to practice sexual immorality. So you're not surprised that's a title that's used for the same thing going on here. Here's somebody that's uh, causing uh, the, the community of faith to, to worship other gods and practice immorality. Uh, when you get to Jezebel, and you know Jezebel, if you, if you want to do Jezebel, uh, you can go read, uh, go read the Elijah, Elisha material in 1 Kings. She's referenced again in 2 Kings. You'll see what she does. Jezebel, which you'll see at Thyatira, Jezebel was the queen of Queen Ahab. She was Phoenician. She came from Sidon. She was a worshiper of the god Baal. So when she 
when she married Ahab and moved to the capital of Israel, for Ahab was Samaria. Uh, she um, brought with her f- 850 prophets um, for Baal and the other goddess Asherah. So she strongly, with 850 prophets, she strongly pressured, pushed, encouraged the Israelites to worship the false god Baal. And again, if your queen's telling you to do that, some people are so patriotic, they're going to do what the queen says. So she had impact. Uh, so she was, she, she was helping the Israelites, encouraging the Israelites to worship the false god Baal. And if you know anything about Jezebel, the reason you probably did not name your daughter Jezebel <laughs> is because you know that Jezebel was sort of a um, bad girl. That's a good way to say it. Bad girl. Bad girl. Now, it's interesting, if you read the text in 2 Kings, there's not a lot of reference to what you think she did. Now, because of the worship of Baal, she was pushing others to do sexual morality. You know, there's not a, not a lot of references in 1 2 Kings that she actually participated in that. But worship of Baal would have temple prostitutes. So she, she helped other people get involved in sexual morality. In 2 Kings, where you experience her death, uh, you will see that she, um, and we don't preach this much anymore, she she was a painted woman, is what the text says. Painted woman. Makeup. Remember your ancestors who said don't wear makeup? Because you look like Jezebel. We don't do much of that anymore. Uh, anyway, so Jezebel was, was termed a painted woman. Uh, at one point in 2 Kings, it says she painted her face. And it does say she looked out the window. And we're not real sure what she's looking for and how she is looking when she looks out the window. Uh, but yeah, she's a bad girl on several different levels. That's why I'm assuming none of you named your daughter Jezebel. So um, Jezebel's like Balaam, are, are not heroes in the Jewish faith. But they both did the same thing, basically, uh, for the Israelite people. They led them into idol worship, and they led them into sexual immorality. Uh, we know nothing about the Nicolaitans, except what we read here, or except what some early church fathers say much later. Uh, but I told you last week, we could figure out a little bit about the Nicolaitans, because of just the word Nicolaitan comes from two Greek words, laos, which means people, the laity, and nikao, which means conquer, and that's why some, a company names their shoes Nike. They're, 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 they, they're to lead you to victory. You wear those shoes, you can get the victory. You wear those shoes, you can, be, you can conquer. So the Nicolaitans are the people conquerors. So they're probably conquering the people by acting like Balaam and Jezebel. So we know what the issue is here. Um, You have this external pressure pressure coming on the church to be good Roman patriots, to worship the goddess Roma, to worship the gods of Rome, to worship the emperors who are now being deified. All of that was part and parcel with what it meant to be a good Roman. Who, By the way, the Roman Empire was tremendous. Paul appreciated it because it built the roads upon which he traveled. It made the Mediterranean Sea safe from, from pirates and made it easy to travel. In a lot of ways, after the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, some historians say we did not get back to that level of infrastructure, um, 
in our civilization to maybe the 19th century. I mean, the Roman Empire did remarkable things in, in its day from the time it was founded in the first century BC to the time it fell in the uh, fifth century AD. It did remarkable things, uh, but it got more and more proud of themselves and they started deifying their emperors and Christians couldn't go there. Christians just could not go there. So you had this pressure from the state to um, worship the state and to, to, to yield more authority to the state, to yield some authority to the state that belongs only to God in a Christian perspective. But you also see here, there was pressure from within. There were false teachers within the community teaching them to um, worship foreign pagan gods uh, or accommodate the worship of foreign pagan gods uh, and to practice sexual morality. So uh, life was tough on the Christians in Asia Minor. They were getting pressured from the state, from the culture, and they were getting pressure from the false teachers. Um, and you see here in Pergamum, um, they were yielding to it. They were yielding to it, which is why then in verse 16, it says, therefore repent. By the way, let me back up just a little bit. I don't think I need to define sexual immorality for you. Um, the word there in the Greek is porneia, from which we get pornography. Uh, the word is a rather broad word. It's not just fornication. When the New Testament means just fornication, it says fornication. When it uses the word porneia, it's broader. So basically what is being commanded or prohibited with porneia is anything that goes against um, the Jewish and then Christian sexual morality. It's a package deal. Porneia is a pretty broad term. So you can go back and look at all the laws and stuff in the, um, in the, in the Jewish Bible and see what they condemned. And you may remember in, um, it's interesting, you may remember in Acts 15, maybe this can be your homework, in Acts 15, that's when the church got together in Jerusalem. The Christian church in Jerusalem, we're still basically Jewish at that point, uh, but Paul was doing his thing, running around the world, making Gentiles into Christians. So in Acts chapter 15, the church had to come together and, and decide on a very important question. How Jewish do we have to be to be Christian? In Acts 15, you see the, the edict that James and the church in Jerusalem declared. They said, okay, Paul's right, you don't need to be circumcised. Uh, but what you see in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council is you have to abstain from eating food offered to idols. Think here. Uh, Paul's going to give you a little wiggle room on that, by the way, in 1 Corinthians. And I may talk about that. But basically the church said in, in, in Acts 15, this is how Jewish you have to be. You have to abstain from eating food offered to idols. Uh, and you have to abstain from porneia. So the whole package of Jewish sexual ethics was accepted. You have to abstain from porneia. Um, you have to abstain from the worship of idols, eating meat offered to idols, and the worship of idols. And I'm really grateful for the fourth thing. Don't drink blood. Don't eat blood. Um, 
that's you don't have to keep kosher law except with the blood situation you don't have to keep kosher law you don't have to be circumcised the church said those are the four things that you have to do that's how jewish have to be because again the christianity is just a way of being jewish but um our way of being jewish irritated other jews ways of being jewish and you know over the years we start sort of splitting and as the church goes to the gentile non-jewish world we had to deal with that issue you know, how much of the Jewish faith do you have to keep? Um, I, I'm really glad that, I, you know, when I go to England and there's blood pudding on the um, buffet, and I asked what was in that blood pudding because I thought surely there's not blood in the blood pudding. And when they told me there was blood in the blood pudding, I felt real Jewish at that point. <laughs> and I was not about to touch the blood pudding. So, uh, and, and you know, maybe there's just something internal in us that kind of tells us not to eat blood. But we do. We but we do. Uh, some of you do more than I do because I see how you eat your steaks. And I can't, I can't even go there. But, 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 but in, even with your steaks. Now, I don't know a lot about the butchering of animals. Um, but I know that we bleed our animals when we butcher them. Because the first time, I did kind of grow up in the country. And the first time I went to a um, hog slaughtering, my first, my one and only time going to hog slaughtering. I wasn't enjoying any of it, but when they slit that pig's throat, I passed out cold. <laughs> now, I was only 12. But maybe that was the Jewish blood in me at that point. But yeah, we do bleed our meat. We do bleed our meat. Just don't scoop it up and make blood pudding out of it. But we do bleed our meat. And that, that goes back, maybe it goes back to other reasons, but in Judaism, you don't, you don't consume meat. By the way, that's why Jehovah's Witnesses will not do blood transfusions. Because they say that is the consuming of blood. All the rest of us say we don't think so. You know, it doesn't feel like I'm eating blood if you give me a blood transfusion. But that's where they get that ass, where Jehovah's Witnesses say to no to blood transfusions. Anyway, all the way back to Pornea. So when the New Testament says abstain from sexual immorality, that is a category more broad than just fornication. Um, anyway, you can go home and keep Googling and learn more. I think you get it. So look at verse 15. They're, they're yielding to the teaching of the Balaamites. They're yielding to the Nicolaitans. They're doing all this stuff. So verse verse 15, so also you have done the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, therefore repent. And that's always included in these letters. Again, we talked about repentance last week. Repentance doesn't mean you're really, really sad for what you did. Now, that may be part of it. That's called contrition. That's remorse. Repentance is just change your mind and go in a different direction. Now, sometimes, you know, if we have an emotional component making us do that, it's easier for us to change your mind and go in a different direction. But sometimes you just have to change your mind and go in a different direction, whether you feel like it or not. That's what repentance is. So Jesus is calling them to repent uh, from, from yielding to the false teachers. So he says, repent. If not, I will come to you and soon I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He will come in judgment to the church. He's already said that. He will come in judgment of the church, take away the lampstand. In other words, take away the light from the lampstand to where you just be a piece of furniture at that point. You're not going to be bearing any light. Um, there's really no city in Pergamum now. And I said to you last week, 
Um, all of these churches have lost their light. Uh, you know, from the, from the time these churches were created up to the 15th century, um, Turkey was a thriving Christian area. Um, it started changing in the 15th century. Now the Christian population of Turkey is 0.03 to 0.05%. The Christian light is gone from this region. So Jesus did eventually come in judgment. The church was done away with. The light removed. So we need to heed the warning. Look at verse 17. The same thing is repeated in every letter. He who has an ear, let him, I would say, listen, pay attention, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And that, that call comes from the lips of Jesus, by the way, in the Gospels as it's repeated here. So we need to listen to what's being said here. And then you have the promise. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what's being promised here? What's the reward being promised? Um, well, if you conquer... Which again, this means hold fast, stay true, don't yield to the culture, don't yield to false teachers, don't yield to the, yield to the culture outside of you, don't yield to the false teachers uh, within the community. If you conquer, and that just reminds us that the Christian life is, is, is a warfare, a spiritual warfare, we've known that for 2,000 years. Um, but if you conquer, you get these rewards, hidden manna. Well, you know where manna comes from, right? And from the Hebrew Bible, that's how the, that's how the Israelites are fed in their wilderness wandering. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mysterious, mystical bread from heaven. Uh, of course, when Jesus comes along, he says, I am the bread of heaven. Uh, so this, this, this hidden manna they will receive. So somehow they'll find a sustenance um, to, to be able to keep on keeping on. They will find the power to keep going. They'll find this hidden sustenance that the world can't see that the world doesn't understand. They'll find this power that the world doesn't understand. Um, there may be something even a little more specific than that. There is a Jewish tradition that when the temple fell in 586, um, first time it fell, when the temple fell in 586 uh, and, uh, and the Ark of the Covenant was lost, as you know, the Ark of the Covenant is lost, to everybody, to everybody but Indiana Jones and those Nazis in that movie. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was lost in 586. Uh, there's a tradition that as, um, as the Babylonians were approaching Jerusalem, Jeremiah hid a pot of manna that had been kept since wilderness wanderings 500 plus years before. The, the Jeremiah hid a pot of manna in the Ark of the Covenant. So wherever the Ark of the Covenant is, that pot of manna is in it. This is a Jewish tradition. I don't think that was in Indiana Jones. The pot of manna was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Jewish tradition is that when Messiah comes, we'll get that pot of manna. We'll be, all this will be restored. The Ark of the Covenant will be restored, and we'll get the pot of manna. So this may be a reference to, you know, you'll, 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 you will get the final reward, this hidden manna. Uh, notice the white stone. You'll be given a white stone. Uh, white stones were used for several things in the ancient world. White stones were used for um, admission tickets. Maybe you're going to be admitted to the Messianic kingdom. White stones were used um, by juries to vote acquittal. If you got the black stone, bad deal. White stone, that was a vote for acquittal. Um, 
White, as you remember from your list of symbols, certainly symbolizes victory in the ancient world, symbolizes victory throughout the book of Revelation. So white symbolizes victory. Um, it may be acquittal. It may be admission to the Messianic kingdom. It may be a sign of your victory. Uh, somehow you're going to be given this gift um, that may symbolize admission to the Messianic kingdom, victory over life. Um, with a new name, keep in mind that a name in the biblical sense, like the name of God, Think about Moses saying, you know, saying to the burning bush, who are you, God? I need to know your name. Names in the ancient world did not just mean a label. For us, they're sort of labels. Uh, but in the ancient world, a name meant something. It said something about the person. Um, that's why when you pray in the name of Jesus, you're praying in the spirit of Jesus. You're praying in the power of Jesus. You're praying, praying in the authority of Jesus. So name's not just a label. You know, something that we affixed so that we know what to call you when we see you. Uh, it means a whole lot more than that. So when it talks about receiving a new name, most of us assume what it says here is if you conquer, if you stay true, you'll get the, you'll get the, new, you'll get the new character, the new personality, the new life uh, that's being promised to us in the Messianic kingdom. Uh, the Messianic kingdom that, in which we'll find the hidden man and we'll, we'll be admitted because we have the white stone. We will get that new character eventually if we just stay true now. Now, it may, it may mean that you die like Antipas. But we'd rather die like Antipas than yield to the culture around us and reject Christ. By the way, we even have a tradition about Antipas. Um, we know nothing about Antipas than this right here, but that doesn't stop Christian imaginations from working. There's there's a Christian tradition that says he was um, he, he he was he was he was he was roasted in a bronze kettle, is the way he was he was martyred for his faith. It may be true, maybe true. Yeah, that one martyr that's mentioned here, um, he, we know he's martyred. But that's the tradition as to how he's martyred. So with that being said, I stood right before you and God and their bells and lied. I'm not going to do the Church of Thyatira. Because <laughs> that's one of the longest letters. That's one of the longest letters. And I really don't want to rush to the Church of Thyatira. Um, I got to May the 20th. So we, we, we will get there. So that's the Church of Pergamum. That's the Church of Pergamum. So we'll do the Church of Thyatira and maybe Sardis next week. So find somebody you don't know, uh, make a new friend, greet one another, uh, and go in peace. Thanks for coming.